Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today we're going to continue our message series on Genesis, and what we're doing is we are examining our rich history of faith, but we're also connecting the dots all throughout history of how we're connected to this long line of faith. It helps us put things into perspective and remind us that you're not just a person who showed up here and who's making a decision to follow Christ, or you came to church because somebody wanted you to. You being here this morning connects you to thousands and thousands of years of history, to people who live in parts of the world that you've never been to before. And their faith made it possible for us to be here today as a people studying this. The lives that we're, the re- we're reading about here today were recorded in such a way to build our faith so that the way we live can be encouraged, that, that we're not doing this on our own. We are, we are part of a long, long history, and that's one of the reasons why we're reading Genesis. And so far, we've read all about Abraham. Last week, we followed Isaac, and this week, we're going to follow Isaac's son, Jacob. That's where we are in Genesis chapter 27. We learned last week that Jacob was a twin. He, he was born uh, with his twin brother Esau. Esau was born first, and then Jacob was born second. We know that they struggled from the moment they were on the inside of their mom's uh, tummy, and from the moment that they were born, they were wrestling and not getting along and fighting constantly. So let's jump into their story. Where we pick up in 27 now, they have grown up. They are much older. Isaac is now so old that his eyes are growing dim, and he knows that he is on the um, very end of his life. And so he calls his uh, oldest son in Esau, gives him some instructions, and that's what we're going to pick up today. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 1. We're also going to put it up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, let's get to it. Genesis 27, 1. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. Anybody else find it weird the way that that's written? It feels like a lot of unnecessaries. Hey, my son, here I am. It could have just said, here's, hey, he called his son and then he said something. But the dialogue between what's happening here is interesting because you'll, you'll see this kind of writing all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you, when you see Luke's writing, when you see Acts, uh, Luke wrote Acts 2, you see this dialogue. It's almost like the author is trying to capture these specific moments. Why would he do that? It's a reinforcing that this is a thing that actually happened. Okay, This is important. It seems silly, but this is important for us because the temptation that this world is going to offer you is that all of this stuff that you read about here in the Old Testament didn't actually happen. It's metaphorical. It's, it's like Aesop's fables. It was meant to teach a, a theory or an idea. It was meant to uh, pass uh, important value systems on through the family lineage. But when you read this, it's written like somebody who recorded an actual conversation, and that style is meant to reinforce the fact that this was an actual family that had an actual conversation. This is a literal thing that happened between Isaac and his son Esau. You follow? Okay. 
Verse 2, he said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapon, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca, who's Isaac's wife, was listening when Isaac was speaking to his son Esau. So when Esau went into the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before, uh, bless the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Do you see what's going on here? <clears throat> Rebecca realized that her husband was about to bless their oldest son, so she's hatching a plan to deceive her own husband, and she's bringing her son into it so that her youngest son can receive the father's blessing rather than the oldest son. That is some shady business. Don't you think? So verse 11, but, but Jacob said to his mom, good on you, Jacob. Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So Jacob's like, mom, this doesn't seem like a smart plan. Like dad knows the difference between the two of us. And his mom essentially just says, no, he doesn't know the difference between the two of you. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son. So Rebekah raided Esau's closet, which were in her house, and she put Esau's clothes on Jacob, her younger son. So she dressed up Jacob like Esau. But she didn't stop there. She took the skin from the goats that she had just killed, and she's making, I guess, goat stew. She took the skin from the goats, and she put the skin on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And she did one of these. Go on, son. Go on. Go on in there. Now, let's pause for a second before we read any further. Because this is a very interesting family dynamic. Don't you think? And it's interesting because for all of the instruction in the New Testament for the, um, for the way that families are supposed to operate, um, when you look at qualifications for people who are supposed to lead in church, right? Um, Paul tells Timothy, look, when you're looking for elders and you're looking for deacons, people who lead within the church, make sure you find somebody who is the husband of one wife. Because it's a pretty common thing for husbands to have multiple wives, and that's not the kind of thing you want in the leadership of the church. You should find the kind of guy who has his household under control. The kind of home whose kids are not just completely wild and have no manners and are just completely ignoring the ways of God. And so you've got a husband who says one thing, but his kids are not following, or his wife doesn't want anything to do. If, if, if the husband can't lead in his own home, he's not qualified to lead in any capacity within the church. Right? So those are the qualifications that family is kind of a training ground 
for being qualified within ministry. But if you look through the Bible, there are very, very few examples of good fathers and good mothers and obedient children. They're just not in there. All you see all throughout the Bible are just absent fathers. You see moms who are taking advantage of their husbands. Kids who will not listen to their parents. And yet in the middle of all that nonsense, God still chooses to use and love and work through this broken creation. So the good news for you, all of us in here who are parents and have family, I know as a parent that struggle that rolls around in your heart, man, I feel like I'm not ruining that. I, I hope I'm not ruining them. I hope there's not something that I'm doing that's going to have adverse effects later on. And it seems unfair that I won't find out for 20 years from now if what I'm doing now is right or wrong. The good news is that in the middle of your brokenness and not knowing what to do, God's grace works through that and he will work out all things in his time, even though you don't know what you're doing. So in the middle of this family dynamic that seems broken, there are some interesting lessons to learn. In the middle of a family dynamic where each parent has a favorite child, which is something you shouldn't do. In a family dynamic where the mom is teaching her son how to uh, basically deceive his father. In a family where the dad can't tell his own kids apart. In the middle of all this dysfunction, there are some principles that we can walk away with. And the first one that I'll offer to you is the way that Rebecca treated her relationship with her boys. So in the middle of this dysfunction, we can learn things from their brokenness and hopefully not repeat some of these patterns. So the first one would be um, just kind of bring you back to Genesis chapter 25. You remember when Rebecca was pregnant, she had you know, twins in her belly and they were kind of wrestling around and she didn't know what was going on. So she went and inquired of the Lord and the Lord essentially said in a prophecy to her, the younger child is going to serve the older child. The older is going to serve the younger. Yeah. Basically, the younger child is going to be in charge. In a typical family in the Middle East at this time, the oldest child always had all the rights and privileges. But before these child's were even, child, children were even born, Rebecca went before the Lord and inquired, and the Lord said, hey, this family is going to be a little bit different. The younger child is going to lead in this family. Esau, the older one, is going to submit and follow to his younger brother. Well, she kind of treasured that in her heart, and that was kind of her motivation for wanting to make sure that her son got the father's blessing because she knew God's will was for Jacob to be the one receiving the blessing, even though he wasn't the one who was supposed to get it. But rather than trust her, uh, trust God's plan, she did what her ancestor Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar. Abraham was promised, you're going to have a child. But Abraham and Sarah got together and said, you know, it's probably not going to be through you because you're old. So how about you take my servant Hagar and we'll have a child through them and we'll claim it as the promise. So technically, God's will came through even though we kind of made it happen. So it's not like Rebecca pulled this out of thin air. She had a long family history of this being the norm in this family. God promises something and they take it on their shoulders to make it come about. Cool then let's do it right now. Let's not wait. So it seems malicious, and in some ways it is, but her desire ultimately is to bring about a good thing, this promise that God gave. She, she wanted the good thing on her son. She wanted her son Jacob to, be, to receive the promise like God had um, established. The problem is that she's using 
evil ways to bring about good things. And that is what I would submit to us as one of the first lessons that we should learn. The principle we take away from Rebecca's decisions is that we cannot justify sin because you think it will bring about a good thing. You cannot choose evil because even because you are convinced that um, the end will justify the means. Well, something good is going to come about this, so I can kind of make some compromises here because on the other side of it, good things will come. That's not how things work in God's kingdom. Now, by his grace, he does use those ways, but he uses those ways to prove a point that he is in control. But you are not God, and you don't get the luxury of the working the way God does and saying, well, I guess I'll choose this thing, this sin, this thing he told me not to do. Um, I, I want a family, which I know is a good thing in God's kingdom, and I want children. Um, and I know that I'm not supposed to be with this non-believer but I'm going to choose to marry this person, even though they're probably wrong for me, so that I can get to that good thing later on. I'm kind of getting older in my life. I'm, you know, pushing up into my 30s, 40s. I don't, I don't, I haven't found a spouse yet, so I'm going to have to start compromising so that I can get to that good thing. Are you following where I'm going with this? In no way is it okay to compromise and say that sin or evil is a viable path or solution to get to the good things that God has for you on the other side. We don't compromise to get to the promises. You follow? So that's what Rebecca's teaching us. She knew that this is what God wanted, but she took it on herself to deceive her own husband and brought her son in the middle of it so that on the other side he could be blessed. Well, that's a good thing. But, but is it possible? Is it just, is it possible that Jacob could have received the blessing a different way? Is it possible? Absolutely. But this is the way that Rebecca chose, and she taught her son a lot about deception. And unfortunately, this will become a pattern in his life. Mom, excuse me, mom will teach her son that this is okay. Now, she didn't, she wasn't the first one to teach this because he deceived his older brother earlier with the whole stew thing just a couple chapters ago. He, just, he basically talked his brother out of his own birthright by, for a bowl of stool. Stool. <laughs> Ew. Stew. <laughs> That's a good one. Put that one in the book. We should start a book of all the mistakes I say on Sunday morning. So he deceived his brother for a bowl of stew. So it was in Jacob from the day he was born. He, was, he had this deceptive thing, but it, it, it's not helpful for mom to encourage it and to teach him how to do it, right? So she's encouraging this inside him. Well, this thing inside of Jacob... Esau didn't respect his birthright, so Jacob took his blessing too. This is the second time, as I said, that Jacob has deceived and manipulated, and this is starting to become a pattern in his life that his mom is reinforcing and teaching him. Um, and this is, um, this is going to be unfortunate for him because he's getting results doing this. And I said this uh, a couple, uh, I guess it was probably a year ago in a message series, um, that one of the worst things that could happen to a successful compromising man is for him to have success. 
Think about a man who in business makes a decision to make compromises in his business, to do wicked compromising things, and then those decisions brought success. What do you think that person's gonna do the next time he has the opportunity to make those same decisions? He's gonna do it again because he saw results last time. The, the worst thing that a person who compromises can get is results because it teaches them that this works. And so I'll do it next time. And the problem is that when, when they do it next time, they get better at it. The thing about lying is that the more you do it, the better you get at it. So you can either throw yourself into that lifestyle and become a, become a person who's unbelievably good at lying and deception, or you can say to yourself, I'm not gonna go down that path because it's not a thing that I wanna get good at. I'd rather get good at something else like holiness or honesty. Now that's a hard thing, being honest. Saying the truth when it hurts. But the thing is, is that when you practice that, guess what happens the next time? It gets a little bit easier. And the next time, it gets a little bit easier. See, whatever path you choose, it's always hard at the start. But the more you practice it, like anything, you get really good at it. So if you practice wickedness, guess what you're going to get good at? But if you practice righteousness, you will get good at that it will become second nature. It's the kind of thing that you default to. So unfortunately, this deception starts growing within Jacob. And the principle that I think would be the healthiest takeaway would be what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 7. There's a spiritual principle in Galatians chapter 6 that Paul implements when he says that whatever one sows, that will also he reap. That's a spiritual principle. Whatever you sow, you are going to reap. Whatever you plant, you're going to reap a harvest. And so Jacob, unfortunately, is making a very um, ritualistic um, habit of sowing deception and sowing manipulation. And it is going to, he is going to reap from it in just the next few chapters. Okay? But the, I think finally the, the last takeaway is the relationship between Jacob and Rebecca and their decisions. I don't believe that their decisions were based out of malicious intent. I think that their decisions to do what they were doing, I think Jacob wanted to bless his son because he loved his oldest son Esau. And I think Rebecca did what she did because she loved her son Jacob. Both of them did what they did out of love. This is familiar for most, excuse me, parents because we make a lot of our decisions out of love. The problem is that love for one meant the other suffered. When you love one thing with your whole heart, guess what's not, what you don't have anything left for, for something else, any part of your heart. If you throw yourself and fill yourself and give yourself completely to this one thing, then what part of you is left to give it to something else? The spiritual principle to this is tied to what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, 24, when he says nobody can serve two masters. There's a principle there. You can't throw your love to one thing and expect there's going to be enough left for something else. 
You can't serve two masters because you will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he finishes it with you cannot serve God and money. But it's not just between God and money. It's anything. You can't love one thing with your whole heart and still have any heart left for something else. And this was the problem with Jacob and Rebekah and their sons. They were so in love with something that they didn't have any love left for the Lord and his ways and his word. And that's the warning for us and the takeaway from this section of the story. Do not become so in love with something that you disregard your love for God. And when I say love something, I mean anything. I mean your wife. I mean your children. Don't love your children so much that you disregard God and his ways. So how is, how is that possible? Well, God tells us as parents, one of the things we're supposed to be doing is caring for our kids. And sometimes that means disciplining them. But there's a thing inside of us, is, well, I don't want to discipline them. I, don't, I love them. If you withhold correction because you love them so much, you're disregarding God's ways. That's one example. But that goes for an idea. You can get so sold on investing in this thing or buying this thing that you disregard God's ways for stuff. You get so sold an idea to move across the country or do this thing or change this lifestyle or throw yourself into this thing or say yes to this or, or when, you know, uh, sports comes around and that's the thing you throw yourself to or, or you throw yourself into your hobby. Any, anything. You cannot afford to love something with your whole heart that you then disregard God because there's no heart left to love him with. This is why Jesus says that you should... Hate your brother and your sister and your wife and your children and your spouse. That, that, that parable Jesus is talking about, it's also, well, what does it mean if you want to follow me that you have to hate all these close people in your life? He's, he's not saying you literally have to hate them. He's saying in comparison, your love for the Father should look so grand that in comparison, anything else doesn't even look like love. It looks like hate. You should throw, if you're going to give your whole heart to something, give your whole heart to God and his kingdom and the way he does things. So let's pick it up in verse 21. So Isaac said to Jacob, so Jacob walks in and he's dressed in his brother's clothes and he's wearing goat hair on his hands and his neck and he's holding a bowl of stew. Isaac says to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, to his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. But he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And the father Isaac said to him, come near to me, kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. And he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son 
is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. There's one, one thing I want to pull out of this, okay? I want us to examine not just what's happening between the dynamic of what Jacob is doing. I want us to look at the imagery of what's happening, okay? The Old Testament is full of types and shadows. All the stories in here are meant for one purpose, to point us to Jesus, to let us know, guess what's coming? Something's coming that's kind of like this, but way better than this. This is one of those moments. So follow me with this. You've got the younger brother seeking his father's approval, okay? In order to get the father's approval, he covers himself in the older brother's garments to present himself. So the younger brother comes in clothed in the older brother's garments, and the father blesses the younger brother because of the older brother. In like manner, the father accepts us because we are clothed in Christ. This story is foreshadowing and telling us what Paul said in Colossians 3, 9 through 12, Romans 13, 14, Galatians 3, 27, that we as believers are supposed to clothe ourselves in Christ. Because the only way that you are accepted before the Father is because of what Christ has done and not what you have done. When you clothe yourself in Christ's righteousness and you stand before the Father, you are declared not guilty and adopted into the family of God, not because of your own merits or because some stew that you made or because your skin is hairy enough or because you are the oldest son and you deserve this birthright. You did not deserve this. You were out on the outskirts. You were not part of the family. You were not considered one who is going to be part of the blessing because of Christ and what he did all of us stand before God without any fear or any worry because his righteousness clothes us. So we have passed from darkness to light. We've been made new creatures. We've accepted Christ as our savior. What left is there? What do we do now that we have accepted Christ and we have put on the father's or the, the older brother's robes and we have stood before God and we've accepted the blessing. We are now part of the family. What is there left to do then to on a regular basis put on Christ and be changed into what we have put on? This is what's left to put on Christ and become what we are to live in a way that is in step with what we say we believe and who he was and how he lived. You follow? The beauty of what was done in Christ taking the sacrifice for us and shedding his blood in our place and taking the wrath of God so it's not coming our way anymore. All of that imagery is wrapped in this moment when the younger son stands before his father, wrapped in his brother's older 
his older brother is closed and he receives the blessing. And to that, the only thing I can say is praise Jesus for preaching the gospel in Genesis 27. It's so easy for us to assume that the plan of Jesus doesn't show up on the scene until Jesus is born. And that's not the case. The plan has always been Jesus. There has never been another plan. There has never been two covenants. There has only been Jesus fulfilling the old covenant on our behalf. Do you follow? The reason why we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore and follow the, the over 400 laws in the book of Exodus is because Jesus in his righteousness fulfilled those for us. And then when we stand before the Father and he says, how is righteousness fulfilled? It is fulfilled by my faith in Christ. He did it on my behalf. That is how I am clean. And that did not start the, when the New Testament was penned, it started all the way back at the foundations of the earth. This started before Adam and Eve ever chose to disobey and sin. God already had it in his heart. The Trinity had already planned that this is what Christ would do and how humanity would be redeemed. This has always been the plan. And that's the beauty of it. That God didn't have to put together some backup plan because of what we did. This has always been the plan for Christ to be the stand-in for his people. That makes me want to shout. Because I remember my life before Jesus saved me. I remember being invited to a summer camp and sitting on the back row and watching everyone else sing and thinking, this is the biggest room of weirdos I've ever been in. What is wrong with these people? And then later that night in that same chair, sobbing and crying uncontrollably, power of the Holy Spirit hitting me and me hear, hearing God say in my heart, I'm calling you. Your mind followed me and being overwhelmed with emotions and just sitting there and crying. I remember what it was like before I heard the voice of God say, your mind. And I remember what my life looked like shortly after that. And I look at what's going on now and the way that God's used me. And I'm overwhelmed that I am part of this grand plan. It's so easy for us to forget where we came from and where we were. And just excuse what he actually did for us until you come and you read scripture like Genesis 27 or you read what takes next take, takes place next in Genesis 28. So 27 finishes. Esau eventually comes back from hunting. He finds out what Jacob has done. Esau is angry. He hates his brother. So Rebekah makes plans to send Jacob away so the boys aren't in the same house because Esau is probably going to kill Jacob. So Jacob goes back to Rebecca's hometown to find her, her, him a wife. Jacob leaves to go find someone to marry, and Esau decides to marry some local girls to take revenge because it was the one thing he knew his parents didn't want him to do. He didn't want him marrying local girls, so he does it in any way to make his parents mad. 
So Jacob sets out on the journey back uh, to his mother's hometown, which is a journey of probably um, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, maybe 500 miles or so. It's a long, long journey. So in the middle of this journey, he's heading back home. And we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 10. This is Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. That's where his mom was from. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. The guy used a stone for a pillow. You ever hit these verses where you're like, why did you do that? Have you guys ever been camping and used a stone for a pillow? I can't think of a single scenario in my life where that was what I would use for a pillow. I think I would probably just lay flat on the ground rather than use a stone as a pillow. Sorry, that was just a stream of conscious. But he laid his head on this stone. In verse 12, he says, he dreamed and behold, There was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. In Hebrew, it's Bethel. The name previously was Luz. Bethel is a much better name. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. This is what I was talking about. What has Jacob done up to this point to deserve God calling him out? He's deceived his brother twice. He's deceived his father. He's listened to his mom's poor advice. And now he's running away from home to avoid his older brother killing. What qualifications, what righteousness does Jacob have that God would reach down into heaven and give him a vision like this and say, I'm going to bless you and give you all this land? What has he done? Nothing. What have you done? Nothing. But in his righteousness and his grace and his love, he called your name. This is what I was talking about. That moment 
with me, of, of me sitting on the back row of that camp and just crying. I couldn't help but think about that moment this morning where we were worshiping and we were singing that song, uh, your goodness is running after me. What did I do to deserve him using me? Well, nothing. That's the beauty of it. I wasn't qualified. I was the last person anyone would have picked. But in picking me and filling me with his presence, I was empowered to accomplish much more than I've ever could have accomplished on my own and for much greater purposes. And the same is for all of us in this room. It is not on your righteousness. It is not on any qualifications you have. It is not on anything that you bring to the table or how good you are at something. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is because when you stand before the Father, you smell like Christ. Christ's sacrifices. That is what this is about. The beauty that God would love us because he chose to love us and not because we were qualified or worth loving. Up to this point, God was just the God of Abraham and Isaac. Up to this point, Jacob had never entertained the idea that God would be his God. But after this, Jacob memorializes this moment with an altar and a promise. And the promise essentially is, if God demonstrates his faithfulness to me, then I will respond with faithfulness. And that is an important qualification there. Because if you read it, you can read it the wrong way if you read it too fast and seem like Jacob's saying, well, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this to you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if what you're saying is true and you are faithful to me, the only natural response that I can have is more faithfulness to you. That is the only logical way I can respond to your love and faithfulness. It is pouring out on me when I did not deserve it. The only logical response I can have is to respond in like with more faithfulness and more kindness and more love. He initiated it, and all we're doing is responding. That's what we're doing here today as we study the Word of God. All we're doing is responding to what he started thousands of years ago. That's all we're doing. That's what worship is. Worship, the, the act of singing and lifting our hands and shouting and, 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 and uh, um, um, dancing or whatever we do as an expression of worship, all that is is a response to what he's already done. We're not conjuring something up to get him to do something for us or get him to do more. It's a response to everything he's already done. There's nothing we can do in worship that is not a response to something that he has already done. And that's the beauty of what we see in this moment. And Jesus references this moment in John 1. In the first chapter of John, Philip meets Jesus and goes and tells his brother Nathaniel, hey, that guy we know we've been waiting for, the, the prophet that Moses uh, and the other prophets talked about, the Christ, I met him. And so he brings his brother Nathaniel back. And when Nathaniel meets Jesus, the first thing Jesus says is, uh, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's response is kind of like, it's, it seems strange. He's like, well, wow, like you are the son of God. And Jesus, Jesus' response is like, are you responding that I'm the son of God because I saw you under a fig tree? Because I, I know who you are because I saw you praying? Or uh, like buckle up because you're going to see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So what is the interpretation of this dream? What is the interpretation of 
Jacob seeing heaven open and a ladder coming down and angels coming up and down. Jesus gives the interpretation of this dream. The interpretation is Jesus is the ladder. He's the connection between heaven and earth. And you're talking about a separation of a couple thousand years before Jesus shows up. Jesus is giving this vision about himself and telling Jacob, I'm going to bring about my plans through your family. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. I've been working all things together since the beginning to get you to right here at this moment. So go ahead and follow me because I know where I'm going. You can trust me because I've had this plan before you were ever born. See, the truth is that the same is true for us today. Jesus walked with Adam and Abraham and Noah. Jesus appeared to Jacob and promised to use his family to bring salvation. Um, as, as, if you read through the, New or the Old Testament, you see that Jesus was faithful to the promises through David and Solomon and Daniel all the way through when they went into exile and when they eventually came back. Jesus was faithful to the disciples and that message was preached all the way throughout the ends of the earth and it eventually made it somehow to some way to you and you are now sitting in this room right now because of a message that the disciples spread and heard from the lips of Jesus that was all a prophecy that took place thousands of years before Jesus was born with a guy laying his head on a rock as a pillow. All of us are here today because there is a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And his name is Jesus. And if that's true, if that prophecy is the reason why we're all here today, then maybe we should start living our lives with a little more purpose and direction. Perhaps we should stop acting like in our lives everything is ordered by chaos and rather start considering the fact that everything is orchestrated by God, that things in our life are a divine appointment orchestrated by God from the foundations of the world. And if that's true, then you can start living with way less stress because whatever is going to happen to you tomorrow that is going to shake you to your core, God already knew it was going to happen and he already provided for it and he already made provision and he's gonna see you through it. See, there's tragedy coming for many of you in this room in the next six months that you don't know anything about, but God already knows and he has already prepared a way for you to be sustained, loved and encouraged through it. And if that's true, what are we afraid of? Why are we so afraid of COVID? Why are we living our lives paralyzed in fear when we have been told numerous times in this book, do not fear? Why are we making choices in our life on fear? I'm not talking about using wisdom, okay? Like, don't go lick a bus stop. Don't let people cough in your mouth. What I'm talking about is making decisions about your future and your right now because you spend more time watching the news than reading this. And you're letting people with no qualifications tell you how you're supposed to think and live your life when the Bible has already told you how you're supposed to think 
and live your life. Why are we allowing ourselves to be paralyzed with fear when the Word of God has already told us what we're supposed to think about any given situation, and that is do not fear. Well, Jacob finishes his journey when he gets to Genesis chapter 29. Jacob comes on his, finishes his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered, and the stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and the water of the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Cool, now we know how wells worked back then. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We come from the land of Haran. So he had finally finished his long, long journey. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Naor? And he said, uh, Yeah, we know him. He said to him, Is it, is, is it well with him? This is his uh, uncle. And they said, It is well. Don't you see? Uh, Rachel, his daughter, she's coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high in the day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well when the water is, when we water the sheep. So verse nine, while she was, excuse me, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Ooh, she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, cool, they're cousins, that's weird, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept out loud. Why? Because the moment he saw her, he knew that she would be his bride. And his journey finally came to an end. So Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. Hey, we're related. I'm here to find a wife. And my mom, your dad's sister, whatever, um, sent me here. Glad we met. So as soon as Laban heard the news, they went home about Jacob, his sister's son. He ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him into his house. And Jacob said to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so he stayed with him a month. So Jacob's now um, taking up shop here in Laban's house. And in verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's a tough comparison between sisters. Rachel was beautiful, and Leah's, well, her eyes were weak. So Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So please stay with me. So Jacob served seven years with Rachel, served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but only a few days because of the love that he had for her. So he served for seven years and didn't even seem that long because he loved her so much. So Jacob finishes his journey. He comes up, he meets with them. He meets this girl and he goes ahead and he agrees to stay with Laban for seven years. And then as the story continues, on the seventh year, when things finish, and he says, okay, I'm ready to marry my bride. Laban says, okay, let's throw a party, let's throw a wedding. And then the wedding night happens, and Jacob realizes that he hasn't married Rachel. He's been deceived 
and he married Leah instead. And so he goes to Laban and he says, what did you do? How dare you? You deceived me. Interesting. And Laban says, look, in our country, it is customary that the oldest gets married off first. I couldn't, I couldn't marry Rachel to you first. But I tell you what, if you serve me for another seven years, I'll give you Rachel too. Just wait till the wedding is done, and then you can marry her, and then you can serve for another seven years. Do you remember what I told you originally about sowing and reaping? This is Jacob reaping what he sowed. He sowed deception with his father, and he reaped deception with his father-in-law. He sowed deception to Esau in refusing to acknowledge the firstborn authority, and he reaped Leah as the firstborn. The whole ordeal cost him 14 years of his life. Now, we're going to cover his children next week because that's a whole other bag of kittens. But I want to finish today. This is the last thing we're going to read, Galatians 6, 7, 8. I quoted this earlier, but I want to give some context for it. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Just listen to what this says. It says, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So this is the final spiritual principle for us today. Your investment will always yield a reward. If you invest in the flesh, meaning selfish desires, immorality, division, envy, drunkenness, you're going to reap those things in your own life, in your family, in your friends. If that's the kind of thing that you sow, that's the thing you're going to reap. But the other side of that coin, if you invest in the spirit, let's just use spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, you're going to reap that in your family, in your friends, and in your own personal life. So I bring this up because there has never been a better day than today for you to take an inventory of your investments. Where are you investing? Are you investing to the flesh? Are you sowing seeds of corruption? Because if you are, you're only going to reap more corruption. And that's, for most of us, the reason why we're not gaining any traction. Because the only seeds you're sowing in your life are to the flesh making your flesh satisfied and happy. And you wonder why you're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit grow in your life. You wonder why you're not living in peace. It's because you're sowing to the flesh. You're not sowing to the Spirit. So, today, it's a good day to ask, what areas are you sowing to the flesh? And what ways are you reaping an embarrassing reward? Isn't it time today to change your investments and start sowing to the spirit instead of the flesh? That's the questions I want us to ask as we finish our service, because the truth is, Jacob learned this lesson, and I don't want it to cost 14 years of your life. If you invest in your flesh, you will not see heavenly rewards. I don't care how hard you try, you can't avoid that spiritual principle. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.